Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who took a DNA test and discovered that I'm 100% human. So that's a relief. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview I did in San Francisco recently with Ann Wojcicki, the CEO of 23andMe. I've talked to her a lot of times before, but this interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Rock Health Summit at UCSF. Let's take a listen. over. It's a big couch. I want to sit next to you. Okay, good. Oh, thank you. I know I'm supposed to sit over here, but I don't care. So we have a lot of things to talk about. Obviously, Ann and I have known each other forever. A long time. But long time before, when she was a healthcare analyst. Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to talk about 23andMe, but I think it's remiss of me not to talk about the current news with Elizabeth Warren and testing. And so I wanted to sort of get Ann's reaction. Uh, Come on. People are going to learn a lot about genetic testing in this period, I think. Mm-hmm. So let's talk, what, talk about this. This is like, you know, you guys have gotten a lot of attention and different things, but this sort of brings a huge focus onto people's genealogy. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's um, this sense of identity and where people are from is definitely a hot topic. Like, we have this new um, podcast episode that's that specifically talks about race and the definition of race and how it's being redefined. And years ago, probably four or five years ago, I spoke at the National Association of Reform Rabbis, and I presented them, like, hey, here's all the different results people are getting. People find out they're 5% Jewish, 10% Jewish, 15% Jewish, and they're walking into synagogues and, like, we want to join. We're part of the tribe. And, <laughs> and it's kind of similar in this case. Like, what, what is that definition? Like, what's the definition of, of being Jewish? Right. And what's the definition of saying I have Native American ancestry? So we can, or African ancestry. So without a doubt, like, the thing that's amazing to me is the science of your genetic ancestry is really good. And so you get the, in the fringes, again, there's, it's going to keep refining over time. I always say it's kind of like Google Earth in the old days. Like it's a little bit fuzzy, but over time it refines and it refines, and especially as like the databases are getting bigger and there's more and more populations. So I believe, you know, I know Carlos Bustamante who did the analysis. He's like well-known specifically for this. He's an advisor to us. He's Just an to be advisor. clear, Donald Trump tr- said it's a... Not, he was a bogus. He kind of was like, yeah, these are fake tests, like whatever, this is like, and I was like, well, you know, it's ironic because we're going, spending all this time going through the FDA and like 
you know, showing just how like legitimate genetic testing is. And so on the ancestry part, it's like one thing that I remember even when I got my results, like how shocking it was mm -hmm. to see, you know, my father's Catholic, my mother's Jewish and my DNA comes back, you know, wow, you're 50% Jewish. So it is remarkable how like, well, I think how accurate- you know that from your mother's Jewish? Your well, I did, but it was interesting to see it like based on, <laughs> but it was interesting to see it in my DNA. I'm not a scientist, but. <laughs> but I think that's what's interesting is when you see something that's so obvious to you, but it actually manifests in your DNA. Right, you know what I found out? What? I was Jewish. Oh, and yeah. In and African. Okay. And Arabic. Yeah. Everything was in there. It was fascinating. Oh, and so one thing I did, and my mother was even more so, because yeah. I guess we were in northern, southern Italy, so it makes a lot of sense when you start to think about those things. And also my other side of the family is from the south, so you don't know yeah. where it's all coming in. And I called my, I have uh, two brothers, and one lives here in Moran and is totally normal. Uh, the other is in Pennsylvania, and he's, what you'd imagine a Trump person from Pennsylvania would be like. Okay. And, so, and so he's, I would say, vaguely racist. Uh -huh. um, and, <laughs> and so I called him up and I said, hey, brother. And he goes, what? And I go, no, you're African-American. You're African-American. And I yeah. said, now you can hate yourself. Um, so, yeah. Because he's so offensive. But it was a really interesting, it was really fun. I really appreciated that time I spent on 23 in May. Well, it's I mean, one of my favorite stories ever is ironically written by People Magazine. And it's a story of this man who found, you know, he had a one night stand with this woman. He was, a, he's part of the KKK. He was like, you know, child of a grand Klansman. Um, he had a one night stand with this woman who was Jewish. Um, she then went on to have, uh, they, they had a child, went on then to um, have biracial children with someone who's African-American and someone who's Latino. So this man who's part of the KKK finds through 23andMe that he actually has these African-American, um, you know, and, you know, mixed-race children, and, um, and he, they meet. And it's actually a really, it's a well-written story because it doesn't say, like, oh, it was all, you know, lovely, like, roses and everything changed. But it's like, you know, I realize I have to reevaluate my position and it's not easy. Like I have, a, mm -hmm. I have a history of hating. He's like, you know, do I love that I have this African-American son-in-law? Like, you know, it's, it wasn't what I would have chosen, but I'm learning that I have, right. but, I have to reevaluate. In, in this, uh, we want to just get through this news. In this situation, it's being used for not nice things. Yeah. I mean, it was initially used for some reason she did this and then Trump responded and kept calling her Pocahontas and right. then she responded and now she was trying to do this in response to that. Right. So what does that do to this idea of genetics? Because now it becomes sort of a clown show, like in terms of how you treat it. How do you look at this when this news thing pops up and you're one of the companies that is doing this as a business? I think there's a lot. I mean, I think that it's hard to battle fake news. And I mm -hmm. think the only way you battle fake news is actually just with data. And I think that's where, again, I'm proud of Carlos Bustamante, who's at Stanford, who's the one who did the analysis, who's like led a lot of this work, is that there's data behind it. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I haven't worried that much about this because I think that there's data behind it that supports the validity of somebody gets something that says, you know, you have a great, great grandparent who is of Native American ancestry. I think that it's like there's good scientific explanations for it. And I think that in this day and age, you know, one thing I say, often say is like we, you know, one of our biggest competitors in the space of science is, is you know, Goop Health and Gwyneth Paltrow mm -hmm. because she has such pull. 
but you know, some of the things that she promotes don't actually have the scientific validity that my team would be able to stand behind. And so I think in this world, we're seeing all kinds of fake news and fake reports of, of health, but I think that's where the only thing that we can do is help educate customers about what is real science and, you know, and making sure that we're only promoting real science. And it's part of where we have like a very strict standard about what we give back to people. But you consider Gwyneth Paltrow a competitor, really. Well, Not it's a competitor. Really, it's in, only in, because the, the, I don't feel like people who advocate jade in your vagina as a competitor right. to you. But that's, I think it's more that when I think about what people are right. doing, their engagement in health, and see, their interest okay. in wellness, right. they often, like you look at her site traffic, mm-hmm. like her site traffic for the site traffic to the CDC, which is like, like think about like the publicity around, you know, the anti-vaccine movement mm-hmm. and their site traffic versus the site traffic to, you know, again, people who are promoting, this is what the vaccine schedule should be. So my point more is that there's a lot of people who are able to promote sort of faux science. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is actually an, an issue. And part of one of the things that we think about with 23andMe is just promoting scientific literacy because it's important for people to know what is real and what's not real. And in the same ways, like it's, it's actually the same issue that you have right now in news. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you, di- how do you discern what's actually real and what's not? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about where the company is and where the area is because there's been a lot of changes. You've been working with the, where do you stand? You're getting more and more tests Mm-hmm. So talk about an update of where you we are. We keep working with the FDA on different approval processes. So we um, recently got the breast cancer approval. Um, so that's the most recent one. And it was important for us to bring that back because a lot of people, like I mentioned, don't know that they have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. Mm-hmm. So getting, making sure that, you know, if you, if you find out, for instance, that you might be a carrier for one of these genetic variants, but you didn't know that you had Ashkenazi background, you could potentially develop, you know, breast cancer early in your 40s. So, it, again, it's been really important for me to bring that These back. These are things you had initially on 20... I have the original one. I yeah. did the original yeah, one where I, I had lots of the... And yeah. I kept it. I actually printed it all out, mm-hmm. so I had it. And then it was removed from... Well, you still get the PDF. Right, 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 exactly. So, but, you, but you've added breast cancer, and then... We had breast cancer. We added the ones like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, the genetic health risk, we call them. Mm-hmm. And the first approval we got was carrier status. So things like cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. And the one that we're still, you know, we, that we talk about that used to be in the old product, but we don't have back yet is drug testing. So pharmacogenetics. So whether or not you are likely to respond to a medication, whether you're going to be a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, should you take more of a drug medication or less of that? So that's one of the ones that we're still like that we used to have that we often talk about that we would like to come back. Now, Silicon Valley's often been at odds with the FDA. How do you look at the FDA now and how do you look at their processes? I think that... Uh, who is, who, the, the running of the FDA, how has it been under the Trump administration? Under, so Scott Gottlieb is the commissioner. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not know. like a real estate agent, right? Okay. He's not. Okay, all right. <laughs> Scott Gottlieb... No, the, the, C, the deputy CTO of America was a real estate agent, oh, but go ahead. They, Scott, I'm not Scott's kidding. actually... Um, I have a lot of respect for Scott. Scott, um, you know, Scott spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, so he actually understands. He was a partner for a while at a VC fund. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, you know, in past administrations in the FDA. So I think he actually really knows what he's doing, and I think he really wants to do the right thing. And I think that sometimes it's hard. Like, I admire, you know, just running a 600-person company, I admire him because trying to shift such a large organization is hard. So I think he's making progress in important areas. And what, what's progress for, from your point of view? Well, for us, you know, we're kind of in a, um, you know, 
it's, it's interesting to note that of all the sort of more direct-to-consumer companies out there, we're the only ones who've gone through the FDA process. Mm-hmm. So it is a, again, we're really proud of pioneering a direct-to-consumer path, and we're really proud of actually, we're the only ones out there that don't require a physician you know, oversight or a prescription. Um, that said, you know, it's a hard path. And you know, there's a reason why there's not no one else is, is necessarily following it. Is is actually a hard path. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's still you know I I think there's pros and cons of being regulated. You know, it's definitely it's taken a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. That said, we're telling like the one thing I've learned over the last 12 years is, and I tell this into employees all the time, is that we mess with people's lives. You know, you tell someone that they're a carrier for BRCA, or you tell someone, like your case, they, you know, high risk for blood clots, um, or you tell someone that, you know, you're 164th um, Native American, and, and it, has, it has real consequences on their life. Mm-hmm. And so we're messing with people's identity, and it's really important that we take that seriously. So I understand the need for regulation, and I think the thing that's been frustrating, there's a lot of groups out there that, that there's ways to sort of circumvent it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's where I worry more. And again, I bring up things like Goop Health and others. There's all kinds of ways to propagate um, not the most ideal data. Some of them got slapped back. Goop got slapped back. I know Goop there, did, but there's I a lot of a, in uh, genetic testing, I think right. that there's still a fair number of groups out there that can interpret DNA, and it causes me anxiety is that people will get wrong interpretations. Right. So when you look at what you want from this FDA, what do you want to have happen? Because Silicon Valley's always been pressing on the FDA in kind of a juvenile way. I think it's, like, I'm impressed. Like, Apple got their watch approved pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm impressed always with a live core. You know, like, that's one, like, it tells you, it does EKGs. Like, my father's used that device. Like, we'd be on the beach, and he was like, oh, wow, I'm in in atrial fib. This is correct. Yeah, it tells you whether or not you're in atrial fib. So I think that it's one of those things. I think that Silicon Valley, in some ways, has a responsibility to be aggressive and and to go forward to the FDA. Like, I, I... I worry there's a lot of companies that I meet with and people come and get advice all the time and I worry often that people are doing what they can to circumvent the FDA and I think that that actually worries me because one of the things that you do need to do is like with regulators, you have to keep them informed about what is happening because that's how they get educated. Mm -hmm. And you know, we saw the consequences with Theranos you know, for something that's not regulated, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, again, you mess with, you can really impact people's lives. So there's, again, I have a lot of respect for the FDA because I think that they see a lot well, of the Well, in that case, bad. it appears to be outright fraud. In fairness? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it was one of those things, like, they're, they're not technically regulated by the FDA. Mm-hmm. They're technically regulated by who? They're regulated by Center for Medicare Services, by CMS, right. by under CLIA. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's a softer regulatory path. Mm-hmm. So in that capacity, they were able to actually get onto the market mm-hmm. without the same kind of oversight. So how much did Theranos set back companies like yours? There's been all, there's been LiveCore, there's Color, there's, these are like the consumer facing. I ones. think because the Theranos case was so extreme that I don't think it's necessarily had a, a negative consequence. I think that people are more aware. In some ways it's been helpful mm-hmm. that people are more aware of scientific fraud. Mm-hmm. Like we... You know, scientists always say, you know, just because something's published in nature or something's published in science doesn't mean it's true. But my mom would say, like, oh, it's, of course it's true. It was, like, published in that. So I think it, it's, it's, it's been a helpful example for people to realize in some ways that not everything that's out there is actually, like, real. And there's a number of companies that don't necessarily go through a real regulatory or a real data science process. And I think that that's actually been, that's been a helpful eye-opener for customers in some ways. So talk about the consumer-facing business, because... Mm-hmm. It's a struggle. You're trying to sell tests, but ultimately you have to have something else to keep 
people there? Well, the consumer business is good. Like we really, the last couple of years, especially after we got our um, our first FDA approval um, or authorizations, the market is there. Like people definitely are interested in their genetics. They're interested in the sense of identity. You know, and a lot of it, like the ancestry market really exploded first and in part because there's more competition on the ancestry market. But people really are interested in the sense of identity. And, and I think that that's where there's like a, there's a big gap that's out there where people would like to feel connected in, in a different way. And there's interesting conversations about what's actually the definition of family. Is it necessarily the people you've grown up with or is it people that you are genetically related to? Like, what is that definition of family? So that's at the health side is where I think there's, you know, in many ways the most potential. People are hungry for ways and information about how to live healthier. And in some ways, people still are figuring out what to do with information and actually, frankly, how to be in charge of themselves. Mm -hmm. Most people don't really take ownership of their health. They rely, like they go to the physician periodically, they kind of watch, you know, what they, what they eat, their exercise. I think a lot's changing with the watches that's coming out. But that's part of what we're hoping to inspire people more and more is like you are that center of your health and that the more you take charge of yourself, the healthier you can be. So I think that that's, you will see us have a much bigger focus on health in the coming months. Health, how, that you're giving them advice? Just about, well, yeah, in terms of like what you can actually do to help mm -hmm. prevent. You know, if you're higher risk for blood clots, what is it that you could do? Mm -hmm. If you have African ancestry, are you potentially at higher risk for sickle cell? Mm -hmm. So things like that, like giving people and then helping people know what are some of the, what, what are some of the actions that you could take next? But you don't have a physician. A lot of these others you talk about do have physician elements, like color does. There's another one. I can't, I just, they come into my office periodically, have different parts of that. They're often physician-oriented. They're physician, uh, well, they're physician-ordered, but they right. don't necessarily have a physician interface. Mm -hmm. So many of them do recently, I've noticed. A lot of them do where it goes to the physician. And it goes to the physician, right, right. right. And that's because it's under, under Medicare, it, it's required to. Right, I see. But where does, when I'm talking about where the business goes next, is that you, you give them health advice? That you, I, I'm trying to grok gro where your business I think more and more, I think that the, so I think that the having more and more of a robust health product in terms of like, again, getting the drug mm -hmm. reports coming back. So I think that we look at when we can get pharmacogenetics back, it's kind of like the complete product is back. And then it's about helping people have the utility of like, what do you do next with that? So like one of the things that we had before the FDA were some of these journeys of, you know, like you're going into surgery, what are some of the questions for you to think about? and helping people synthesize some of that information. So I think that's more and more the direction is that people want to put all those pieces together mm -hmm. and then put that together in the story. And so, the, again, a world is exploding with the watches in, the, in your phones and the information that you can pull about helping people say, this is what your genetic risk factors are, this is the information that you've given us about you know, how you're living your life, right. mm -hmm. this is actually how much you're walking every day, how much you're sleeping, can we actually then have predictions for you? So I think pulling together more and more of that data and giving you better predictions or coaching. We're gonna take a quick break now, but we'll be back to this interview with Ann Wojcicki of 23andMe in a minute. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. 
Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let's get, get to privacy. We're going to get questions yeah. from the audience. We have a whole bunch. I see them popping up here. Let's get to privacy first, and then I want to answer the question of what the topic of this, the evolution. Sort of you've had an up and down trajectory, essentially. But one of the issues around you all is privacy and what you do. You signed a lot more deals to give information. Now, Well, we never give out your individual level information. I get that. Yeah. But I think people are on a, like, you're familiar with the Google people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> there's been a hack there at Google+, Plus, which nobody uses, fine. Um, uh, except for Sergey. Yeah, except for Sergey, right? Does he? Still. Sometimes. You know, he does. You're right. I always thought of Google Plus as a social media service for antisocial people. Um, so, it's true, right? You see what I'm saying? Okay. I see exactly you got where it. You're going. You got it completely. Um, you have the Google hack, you have the Facebook hack, you've got the privacy issues, you've got a privacy bill in California around things like this. You have enormous amounts of important information. Mm-hmm. And as people input it more or, or use, your, use your, your health things, as they have, can you talk about that? Because honestly, I, don't, I, think, I think that this tech clash against yeah. technology is well-deserved. Yeah. Tell exactly what you're doing yeah. and how you're thinking about it. I think what's interesting, because we're doing technically human subjects research, mm-hmm. um, we have an institutional review board. We have an IRB that oversees the research. Right, review, which is important. Which the is IRB. actually really different. Like Google doesn't have an IRB. Facebook doesn't have an IRB. There's no outside group necessarily overseeing how are you using the data you collected. So, so Not yet. Not yet, not, not yet. yet. Yeah. But in some ways, like that was a helpful process for us in those mm-hmm. early days of like, Really, like we spent the first year that we spent setting up the company, we spent a long time not necessarily just developing the product, but just like thinking through specifically privacy and consent. And how are we going to do this in a way that can scale online, that protects, that actually creates more of a balance. She's anticipating the consequences. Yeah, like things like the Golden State Killer. It was actually something that we thought of. Like we specifically said, like one, we, we don't allow people to take um, you know, other samples and upload them into 23andMe mm-hmm. and compare it against all the data set. And, and we don't do that because in part we've, we thought about that in the early days. Right, that like, hey, one day people might take random DNA samples and upload them there. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually really... Another company did though. Well, it's, it's actually a public data set. It's okay. Jedcom. So like mm-hmm. you have the... And, and it's not necessarily against their terms of service. So mm-hmm. like they allow, if you want to do that. And I think that's part of, the, the most important for me is just making sure people are aware. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite quotes from the Henrietta Lacks movie was that she said, she's like, I would have been happy to consent for research. I just wanted to know that I was consenting. And I think that's a big part is that people don't necessarily want their data not to be used. They just want the dignity of knowing that it is being used and mm-hmm. how is it being used. Mm-hmm. So we ask our customers, do you want to consent for research? Over 80% of our customers do. At any time, if you decide you no longer want to be part of research, you can opt out. You can say, I no longer, I'm withdrawing my consent. If I send you a survey on Crohn's disease and you say, it's not interesting to me, you don't take it, then I can't use your data on that. Um, If I send you a survey on migraines and you use it, well, then we're using it, but we keep you reminded at the top. So... 
for me, it's always been about not giving people that opportunity, but just making it really clear that that's what you're doing. And I think that that's like the main thing. Like in some ways, like GDPR, I feel like tried to do that. Like, hey, FYI, you have these cookies. Like, this is what's happening. But that's really what we've tried to do: is make sure people are aware of what we're doing. And what about the safety of the data? Because that's the other part. Because even if you if you do things just right on consent, because that's only opt in, essentially, that's opt. That's an, a, a definite opt in. Even if that's allowed, and I just recently wrote in the Times about the Internet Bill of Rights, and it's sort of a grab bag of things, and among those is opt in, but. The other one is what happens to the data, third-party uses, and that was what happened at, you know, it was sort of hurricane Cambridge yeah. Analytica, and then it was hurricane Russians and hurricane, right. like. So we don't give, so we ask people, um, his, most of the BD deals we do, we, we are based on aggregate data. Okay. So it's not individual level data. So for instance, if we were doing a study on, again, on migraines, and we are working with Pfizer, we're gonna give them aggregate data. So we'll give them the analysis of the results. There are definitely some cases where we reconsent people so that we can give them data back. And we've now allowed people the option. There's some people who just say, like, you know what, use my data for anything you want. Mm -hmm. And so there's people who have another layer of consent and they're saying, I'm happy for you to do whatever you, you want with the data. So most of the analysis we do with partners is based on aggregate you say data. Most. You just said most. What isn't? That's what I'm saying, this specific example. So for instance, in, um, you know, in Parkinson's disease, we will consent people for individual level data so that data could be shared with Michael J. Fox. Okay, through his thing, so that they can use- But it's an, an additional layer of consent. So majority of our research, I'd say, is aggregate data, mm -hmm. some data, but again, that's where you're explicitly consenting again for individual level data use. And what about the protection of the data within your- Walls. I mean, that's where we spend, again, I, I often say like banks have a lot, like banks pioneer a lot of data security. Like it's your genetic information is really interesting, but your bank account's much more interesting. <laughs> so um, there's a lot that we can learn from that sector. So we do everything we can. You know, it's, a, it's been a high prior, like we have a pretty robust now security team. We're building that out even more. Um, but it's been a really high priority for us since day one. You know, and I'm grateful to my early engineers and that we had, um, you know, people who came from PayPal and came from banking who were really focused on data privacy and security. Mm -hmm. So we do, you know, we do everything we can to make sure we're building out an infrastructure. Structurally, we also do things like we keep your identifying information in a separate data set from your genetic information. Mm -hmm. So those two databases don't speak unless by a very few number of people. So we structurally tried to set it up to make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect your privacy. What's your nightmare scenario here? Because like, I think like I do clear, right? I did clear and they've got my eyeball, mm -hmm. whatever. They've got my fingerprints, they've got my eyeballs. And I just think, you know what? They're gonna come get me someday. I'm gonna, <laughs> they just clearly are. Bet between my tweets and my genetic information, I'm screwed. You know, I think that the... I'm going right to that camp in, in Handmaid's Tale. I'm going right I, there. <laughs> I could only watch that Definitely. first episode. It was awful. I couldn't watch, I couldn't um, watch the season. It's I think real. that the privacy... Um, you know, privacy issues I find for 23andMe are mostly within a family. And it might be since you talk about your family. So mm -hmm. let's say your brother really did not want to know his genetic ancestry. Yeah. And then you told him. <laughs> so, <laughs> which he just did. So did you violate his privacy? I don't care. And so, so that is exactly what most people 
um, say, so I think those types of situations yeah. come up. I'll go to jail where, for that where, day of the week. Where, where you find that people, like you get this disconnect in families about whether or not people want to know. And we mm -hmm. find this, like one of the most interesting things is you often find like children will come in and say like, oh, we want to do 23andMe. And then one of the parents doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. And they clearly know mm -hmm. there's a reason why. And then the siblings find out like, hey, we're half siblings. Right, oh yeah. And so. I saw that John Sales movie. <laughs> that happens. So that happens a lot. Right. And, um, you know, we've uh, had other privacy, you know, the other privacy issues we have. Um, someone in the audience wrote a story like that. I'm sure, well, I mean, it's, it's roughly 10% of the population. So right. there's, I'm sure there's several, there's probably, it could be a support group in here. Right. Um, so you get those, like, I worry more about those. Like, I, I think a lot um, about, I worry more about, like, the holistic economy. Like, I do spend a lot of time um, just making sure that we are really on top of privacy because, to your point, we're lumped in with Silicon Valley. Like, we're, we're you are. part of it. <laughs> yeah. And there is a real, like, I worry about the backlash that's potentially coming our way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it almost feels like a tsunami. Like, we're just in that... Well, you're, it is getting lumped in, and they're very differentiated. I mean, there's a difference between Apple and Google. There's a difference between Facebook and everybody else. Right. But they get pulled in. I had someone, you know, you have people from other companies now who are nothing, who are not affiliated like that going, damn, Facebook. I mean, yeah. they really are angry because of the, all the regulation coming this way is because of behavior right. at Facebook and Google, essentially. Right. Right. So what do you do about that? I mean, I think that's where we try to make sure that we stay somewhat differentiated. I mean, I think that the one thing I'm really proud of for our customers is our customers trust us to an extent. Like it's, you know, I think we've shown to our customers, like we're, we're really protective of how we use the information, what we're trying to do. We've proven out for years, you know, we do, I think research for all the right reasons. We publish, we have over 120 publications. We really try to do the right thing. And I think in some ways with the FDA coming after us, in 2013 and like pioneer, like really sticking to our guns and coming back, I think it's won over a lot of loyalty from our customers. Mm -hmm. So I think that the most important thing we can do, like I'm really protective of, of our customer and the brand. And I emphasize to people every day, like our customers, like you, the individual, it's not farm, it's not others. Like, but it's that's you. A, it's a business. Get, it's a business, but ultimately- How big my, a business is that part, selling um, people's data? But we never sell people's data. All right, okay. All right, listen, Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. <laughs> like, but we don't sell well, people's that's data. That's the Mark Zuckerberg It's a lot answer. about... Because he's like, we never sell data. I'm like, no, you just mash it up and sell the insights back to people. It's the same. Well, thing. okay. So, I mean, we... Yes, we but it's, it's, a, it's always under the term. It's, it's yes, a research partnership. But it's, a, so, it's, a, it's an, a revenue stream for you, right? It's a revenue stream for us. But it's also about... Like, one thing I have found is that our customers who have an illness really want to participate. So for instance, like we're doing a lot more clinical trial recruiting in part because it's a need for the pharma companies, but it's also a real need for customers, like customers who have a disease. You know, somebody wrote me yesterday saying, I have early onset Alzheimer's and I, like there's nothing for me to do. I was like, there are things for you to do. So like matching people up is a real service there. You know what, like we do a lot of research programs with academics and with pharma companies, but more and more what we found is like that business line in some ways, it's definitely a business for us, but it's slow and it's not huge. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of the reason why we invested and we're doing our own drug discovery. Right. So we have 13 drugs on our own that we've, you know, we hired Richard Scheller who came from Genentech and we're pursuing that in part because we feel like that's, again, our mission is about people being able to access, understand and benefit from the human genome. And when you think about like, how are you really gonna benefit? It's that I'm gonna succeed in keeping you healthy at 100. And I'm either gonna keep you healthy at 100 by 
helping you really know what to do. So that gets to the consumer product, the action plan, like what can I do to help you be healthier? Or if you do have a disease, can we actually develop a therapy that really helps you benefit and that really could cure you? All right, um, I'm gonna get questions to the audience, yep. but um, what do you think of all these? I've recently been meeting with a ton of Silicon Valley people on this anti-aging thing, and I'm not talking about oh. lovely lotions. Yeah. Oh, what did you say? Oh, oh, that person. Well, um, <laughs> no, but yeah. there's a couple people. You know that. There, there's VCs involved, there's all kinds of things, and it has to do with longevity. It's not anti-death. I think that's sort of a misnomer. It's like not dying, it's dying at 500 or not being sick when you're 100 or being yeah. very healthy at 100 kind of thing. How do you look at that? I mean, that's sort of in your... I think it is. I mean, I look at being healthy at 100. Like, I feel like we have a long ways to go even mm -hmm. to aspire for that. Mm -hmm. You know, and in some ways, like, there's some of the most basic aspects. It's, you know, understanding diabetes, obesity, and smoking. Mm -hmm. You know, those three really just have such a massive impact on, on health on most people here. I'm inspired by genetics because I think one thing that genetics really can do is help eliminate a lot of early premature deaths. So BRCA being a good example, you know, people who are high risk, who potentially die of ovarian or breast cancer, you could potentially prevent that. Yeah. Um, there's people with sudden cardiac death, you could potentially really help them know they have that and then help prevent that. But what do you look at these, don't wanna die? Don't wanna um, die soon? I haven't, you know, we don't spend a huge amount of time right. on these individuals. Um, I mean, I think that there's without a doubt, like, I think Silicon Valley has some of the reputation for the, you know, we want to live forever mentality and, and helping think that through. I think understanding aging, I think like those mouse studies, you take the young blood and yeah. you put in the old blood. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. I look at my children in a whole new way. <laughs> um, <laughs> tonight, tonight. I, my son was so upset when I told him about that. I was like, I want your blood. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no idea so, why. <laughs> Um, oh, man, you're so I think that there's some. I think there's some like aging itself. Like scientifically, it's a really interesting question. Yeah. Like we don't fully understand aging, so um, I'm a huge fan of like understanding that. I know Calico's doing a lot with that. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to understand it, I think, is really interesting. Um, but I think that the like the the other pursuits, which I'm not as familiar with in terms of like, yes, let's like try to live to 500. I think there's a lot of you know. I, again, it's it's a little bit more out there to me. Right, and that's something you're going to be. I'm waiting to see some of the data. Like, who can make me healthy at 100 first? Like, let's, let's aspire right. for that. Right, all right. Well, let's ask some questions here. Okay. Can you discuss the monetization of data at 20 minutes, which we just did in the partnership with GSK? Mm -hmm. Can you? Yeah, GSK. So we, like I mentioned before, so we were doing, we're doing these partnerships with pharma partners, and we found that there was a real hesitancy. A lot of pharma partners just didn't really buy into, like, what exactly can you do with genetics? Is that really going to help with drug discovery? So we hired Richard Scheller, who came from Genentech. We built up our own drug discovery team, and it's very, it's been really successful. Like, it's been surprising how many discoveries we've been able to take from sort of this concept into development. So we now have 13 programs that are in the research stage that, you know, we're making molecules. And in some ways, we're almost sinking from our own success, where each molecule is, is expensive. And it's not like we just focus on multiple sclerosis or Crohn's. Like, we have a wide variety of disease, you know, that we're, we're focusing on. So as we plan to how we're going to scale, it became really clear that we need the expertise and the, the ability to scale that a large pharmaceutical company is going to have. Right. And so frankly, like we need medical teams across a wide variety of diseases. So the partnership with GSK, I think, is really 
or the collaboration I say, is super exciting because we can do what we do best and they can do what they do best and they're really gung-ho about genetics and the potential there. So Hal Barron, who runs the research team at GSK, used to work with Richard Scheller at Genentech. So we kind of brought the band back together. So I think there's a lot of it, like there's a lot of synergy there. And I think there's a lot of way for us to be able to accelerate and like prove out how people are going to benefit from the human genome. All right. Next is, we do talked about cold cases, this uh, GED match solving cold cases. Can yeah. you speak about that, which you did, which you're not part of? Yeah, we're not part of it. I mean, I think it's a really interesting issue. And I think one thing just to highlight for people, I think a lot of people don't realize this, is that your medical samples could be subpoenaed also for criminal cases. So like there was a story out there about a woman whose pap smear was subpoenaed and actually used to solve a crime. So again, I look at, there's like, there's issues that I, I'm a huge fan of transparency. Again, people want to consent and they want to be part of research for all kinds of reasons. But when I go into the doctor and I have any kind of procedure, I'm assuming it's just for that procedure. And I find that there's a whole new world that like, I'm really it's focused on that you know, we have GDPR and technology now or in the internet, where's that equivalent in healthcare? Right. And why is it, again, you look at Henrietta Lacks and others, like why is it my healthcare information is circulating all over and I have no access to it? Right, so the right to be forgotten, really. Right, there's definitely no right to be forgotten in healthcare. No, not at all. All right, who provides your ethical North Star, the board, you, a cheap ethicist? Or will she or the consumer demand or determine where we draw the line? Have you thought about having one? I know some companies, tech companies, I'm gonna be writing about it, are hiring that, for that role. For a chief ethicist, mm -hmm. you know, it was interesting. We tried. Um, we had this issue where, in the early days, we would we interviewed ethicists all over the place. So, like, and we we actually had offers out, and then every ethicist would engage with us, and then they would say, "Oh no, we'll never speak to you again." And I was like, "Why?" And they're like, "This is so exciting. Like, this is a career-making opportunity. Like, we can only talk about you from." our ivory towers. So mm -hmm. we actually couldn't get an ethicist to join because people found like it was such an interesting hot topic. And so frankly, what I have found is that an opinion of one is not as helpful as like us just actively engaging all the time. So there's something, again, in healthcare, there's the ethical, legal, social, LC group. Yeah. So we have Joanna Mountain, who's one of the first scientists we hired, really was actively involved with the whole LC community. And we do a lot. Like we, we got the feedback in the early days, like thankful to 23andMe, like we generated tons of funding for this community because there's suddenly so much interest and discussion in this topic. So we, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. I would say now um, there's me, like I have a strong, like I'm without a doubt, like I, I have the mission and I drive for the company of like, what is our North Star? But I'm really lucky. Who does lucky. for that for you? Who does that for me? Yeah. You know, I think that's how you're, like, that's kind of your soul, like, how you're brought up. Like, to me, it's, like, my family keeps me very grounded. Others, like, um, and I also, like, I, 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 you know, in some ways, being in Silicon Valley, I see for sure what I don't want to be, and then I'm also reminded of what I do want to be. Mm -hmm. I think one of the best things to do, especially in this day and age of Silicon Valley, is, is sometimes, like, when I worked on Wall Street, I used to volunteer at San Francisco General, and I would just clean gurneys, and I was, like, a patient advocate. Um, and I did it from, you know, 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. And in some ways, like, having that humility again and, like, keeping, staying normal was really helpful mm -hmm. of, like, remembering, like, why are you doing the things that you're doing? And, like, what is the reality here? So for me... Man, um, they're going to have to clean a lot of gurneys, those people. <laughs> they, yeah, oh, no, I mean, it's, like, yeah, the problem is definitely... But I think it's, like, keeping, you know, part of keeping yourself real in that, in that, in the world of, like, what, like, I love interacting with our customers because it helps 
me stay grounded with the mission of the company and like really what is our impact. Okay. And it keeps changing over time. Uh, do you expect 23andMe will ever become a covered benefit or will it remain self-pay? Self-pay. People don't realize that when insurance companies pay for your information, they own it. And I think it's a really important, like again, I go through so this GDPR of yeah. like, where's the GDPR of healthcare? You know, really? I really question like where, if you want to have privacy, like your insurance company, they pay, they have all kinds of rights to the information. And so I'm a huge fan, like more, like all kinds of countries outside of the United States, there's just a self-pay option. Healthcare in my mind should be affordable. It should be accessible. And I'm a big support, like 23andMe, um, we would be a very different product and we'd be a very different company and price point if we were taking reimbursement. Right, okay. Can you, sp uh, what's the one lesson you've learned since the company's founding that you wish you knew at the very beginning? That's a good, that's a very nice open-ended question. I think the thing that we missed, you know, early on to is just um, how long it takes to educate people about something totally new. And I think that we were overly optimistic about the state of scientific literacy in this country. So the early days, you know, it was really a slog about how are you going to educate people about genetics and what exactly does it mean and why would you even be interested? You know, we got that question all the time, like, why do I even care? And as a group of scientists, it was sort of seen as like, it was so obvious, like, of course, like, why, like don't you want to look in the mirror? Like, why would you not want your genetic information? So um, I think that that was one aspect that we missed early on was just how hard it is going to be to educate people about why they should want their genetic information. All right, last two I'm gonna to do together. So many male founders in Silicon Valley and VCs admit preferentially funding them. How do you see your role as a female founder to raise the tide for female founders? And then how does 23andMe ensure a diverse population is represented in its data sets shared with pharma so new drug therapies are developed for all populations? So I'll take the last one. You have to take both. Um, they <laughs> So we we spent a lot of time really making sure, like one of the most interesting issues in healthcare is that it is very much biased towards a European population. And 23andMe, even, you know, will be, you know, 75% European, even at that percentage of 25% diversity, it's the largest data sets that are out there in these different populations. So we do have a number of initiatives going on right now to make sure that we can actually improve the product for different communities and then make sure that we're actually selling and that we are giving it away to specific communities as needed. Diversity in research, I think is one of, it's one aspect, like it's really poorly understood how much it could benefit everybody. And I think that's where like, when you think about personalized medicine, I don't necessarily think about like, you know, people talk a lot about specific drugs. I think about like, you know, what is the right blood pressure for you? based on your ancestry, based on everything. Like, some of these measurements are just like really not well defined. Right. And I think that's where we could actually No, they're do well a defined lot. for one group of people. For one group of people. Right. And, and I think that's where there's a lot that we could do, but I think about that as really understanding the diversity. And then the female founder. Oh, female. I'm not doing, I mean. You're, you're a female. I, I am female. I think it's important to support, I mean, it's more and more, I'm really, I, I have a hard, you know, I spend a lot of time with my sisters, and so I'm kind of surrounded by women all the time. There's like my moments where I'm like, I really should hang out with more men. 
so in some ways, like I, I've had that that privilege, and I also see how great it is to work in gender balanced environments. So I should do more investing that does really try to encourage women. And when I get those requests, it's always quite appealing to me. It's not, I haven't spent a lot of time doing my own investing right now because I think it's just, you know, it's a whole other set of projects. But I think it's really important to do that. And I see just in running the company for my teams where there's less diversity. I think you're one of um, the only women women's CEOs in the Valley, right? One of the few. I'm trying I'm to- I'm one of the few. There's maybe- it makes such a difference. Like, I, I just, and the, the other one's your yeah, sister. I know. Right? I know. There's, that's why we hang out. <laughs> right. Right. We can't um, go by the Wojcicki sisters. We, <laughs> we can't go the but really, you and your, who else is a CEO? Well, we had Marissa. No, but she's not anymore. I know. So, Katrina Lake. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can. There's. There's not a lot, and I, and I and it's really too bad because I think the di- diversity makes such a positive difference. Like it's so much better when you have a diverse group of people. Like, and we had a time period where we had an, a management team that was, you know, entirely women. We're like, we need to hire a man, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> <laughs> we're very unusual in that way. But it's in part like diversity really benefits, and I think it's. You see all the biases. Like, I think it's an issue. So if there's things I can do, I, I should definitely do more of it. I just, it's been, you know, a lot. Busy. Last question for me. You're going to go public or sell or what? I think that being public, I don't think there's any glory in being public. Like, I actually think pu- being public is like almost your, you know, like the last resort option because you lose all your privacy. Mm-hmm. Like, you lose so much mm-hmm. when you have to be a public company and then you're also on, you know, coming as a public analyst. Like, you have all these people like just paid to like spy on you and like trying to get a hold of your employees and do all kinds of things. So, you know, there's no glory. I think that what people always want is they want liquidity. And there's all kinds of fabulous new ways these days of actually having liquidity. You know, and I think if we ever do go public, it's gonna be when we're a much more like mature, stable company. Okay, and sale? So I get sell. I don't think, you know, we're not, um, we don't fit with anyone. And we're also in some ways such a rebellious brand that, we should stay independent. Like we, we need like our brand. We need that freedom. So we're not like we're, we're definitely not. No, we're not selling. All right then. Thank you, so, Anne Wojcicki. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to Anne Wojcicki of Twenty Three and Me for coming on the show and to Rock Hell Summit at UCSF for hosting us. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. If you want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.